Hello and welcome to my podcast Neurific. I'm your host Fabienne Hübener and today I'm going to talk to Professor Heidi Johansenberg. She's a director of the Welcome Center for Integrative Neuroimaging at the University of Oxford in the UK. Her research focuses on changes in the brain with learning, experience and damage. Opposite to many other neuroscientists involved with plasticity, her research concentrates on the white matter in the brain, not the gray matter. She also is involved with new techniques that help patients after a stroke to regain mobility. Sorry for the background noises, we are sitting at a lively cafeteria in Munich in the early morning. If you want to immerse yourself in the scene, please get a cup of coffee and imagine looking at the beautiful meadows along the River Isar. So you're involved with brain plasticity mm -hmm. and one part of your research is dedicated to enhance rehabilitation of stroke patients by actively changing their brains. You are using transcranial direct current stimulation. Mm -hmm. um, how does that method work? Well, it's a very, very simple method. So you just have two large electrodes, so two sort of rubber rectangles that you place on the person's head, on their scalp, so it's non-invasive. And those are connected with the wire to a power, to a big battery, basically, to a power supply. Um, and then a, with direct current stimulation, a direct current is passed between those electrodes, usually in the order of one to two milliamps. So it's a small current. And it's just continuous for the period of time that you stimulate, which typically may be about 20 minutes. So you can place it anywhere. So in our case, we're interested in movement rehabilitation, so we target the motor cortex. It's not a very focal technique, so you're effectively stimulating quite a large area of, of brain, to be honest. But um, alternatively, people may want to stimulate the prefrontal cortex. They would place it over the forehead. So. And have you applied it to yourself too? Yeah, I've certainly been a volunteer in lots of either our experiments or other people's experiments. So how does it feel? Is there a tingle or tingle? Yeah, it's fair. so people vary in how much they perceive anything when you're receiving the stimulation. Typically, people can sometimes perceive a slight tingling as the current ramps up for that reason, because that tends to be when people perceive anything, the, typically the placebo control condition, the so-called sham stimulation. What people tend to do is ramp up the current in the same way to begin with but then switch it to zero rather than to one so you try to recreate that same tingling sensation but then for the remainder of the 20 minutes there's there's no current. And could you explain one typical experiment that you have done with humans and uh, this kind of stimulation in stroke patients? So we first did a series of experiments in healthy people which suggested that this type of stimulation might speed learning, might enhance learning uh, and might enhance brain plasticity in the motor cortex. Then provided a rationale to take the stimulation to stroke patients where the motivation is to use it as a so-called adjunctive therapy, so something that we add on to some other type of therapy. So in this case, we think the stimulation has the effect of boosting plasticity. So we add it to a rehabilitation regime that we think works through plasticity processes. So in our study, we did a randomized control trial in chronic stroke patients, so people who were at least six months post-stroke, often many years post-stroke. And they all received a two weeks intensive motor training, so exercises for their arms. And during those training sessions, which were experienced every day, the patients were wired up to the brain stimulator and then either receiving real current or placebo current. And then what we found in that study was that um, 
So while all of the patients improved somewhat with the motor training, there was an added effect of the brain stimulation. So and how strong was that effect? Is that they just can then move their arm one more centimetre? Yeah, that's a very important question, obviously, for these types of studies. So the effect was statistically significant, but more importantly, you need to know if it's clinically significant, as it ha if it has any consequence. So we used um, various standardised clinical tests of um, arm function, and with many of those clinical tests, there has been described what's called a minimally clinically significant difference, which means how much, how many points do you need to change in order for it to actually make a difference to the patient's life. And on one of the scale, our primary scale, which is a test called the Action Research Arm Test, this minimally clinically significant difference is six points, and the difference that we got exceeded just exceeded that um, that difference. So. Uh, we think, so in, in addition to it being statistically significant, it, it would have had a clinically significant effect. And anecdotally, in talking to the patients, you, they would describe the kinds of things that they were able to do now that they couldn't do previously. So for example, one of our patients describes he previously would have been unable to um, peel and eat a banana uh, because of the limited movement in his affected arm, but he was able to, to do that because his range of movement had increased. He also looked at what happened in the brain Mm -hmm. in humans, but then also in similar experiments in rodents. Mm -hmm. What did you find? What, what is changing in the brain with this kind of method? In the humans, so we acquired different types of MRI scans before and after the, the therapy, and later still. And what we found was that in all of the patients receiving the training, there were some changes in the brain, and these changes were enhanced with the addition of stimulation. So, for example, there were greater increases in the volume of the stimulated cortex, so the structural the size of the stimulated cortex slightly increased and increased even further in the patients who had received the stimulation. Um, in imaging types of scans where we're looking at brain activity, so so-called functional MRI scans, we looked at the activity in the brain when the patients moved their affected arm and what we found was that the amount of activity in the brain region we were targeting increased with the training and again that increase was uh, even greater in the patients who had been receiving brain stimulation so it seemed from the brain imaging results that by stimulating the brain we had enhanced the functional recruitment and the structural increase of the motor cortex that we were targeting. And I think you also did that in mice or rats, I don't know, and yeah, so then you really could look at the cellular level, yes, what, what was yeah, happening. So we haven't actually done experiments in stroke models in, in rats or mice, so the work that we do in rats and mice up until now has focused on animals with intact brains, trying to understand some of these more basic processes of plasticity that occur with learning in the healthy brain where we, what we've been particularly interested in is whether the pathways in the brain, the so-called white matter, the pathways that link different areas together, whether they change uh, with learning and experience. And what we've been able to do in the animal studies is look directly at what aspects of those pathways, which features are changing with experience. Uh, and what those experiments are telling us is that um, something called the myelin sheath, which is a sort of insulating sheath that cover, that encases those fibres, allowing nerve impulses to travel more quickly, that that myelin sheath uh, appears to change in response to activity. So if, a, if 
fibre pathways are active, the more active they are, the more myelin is produced. Um, and that's exciting because pre, it's only in the last you know, 10 or 20, 10 years or so that the idea that, this, that the white matter and the fibres of the brain show plasticity. Is more myelin always better? Well, that's a very good question. So the simple-minded view would be more myelin makes your axon makes those fibres faster and that that's better. However, you can imagine that um, depends on the job that those pathways have to do. So sometimes faster is better. Sometimes you might want to slow down a signal because these pathways aren't working in isolation. They're working as part of a very complicated distributed network of brain regions. And sometimes for a given function, what's required is synchronization. So what you need is for signals to arrive in different places at the same time. So you may need to speed some signals up, but you may need to slow some signals down. So I think um, intuitively you would expect that this type of myelin plasticity would not only exist to increase myelin to speed things up, but might also sometimes be needed to decrease myelin and slow things down. But that has been much less studied, if at all, as a potential plasticity mechanism. Just in a nutshell, what can change in the brain in terms of plasticity? You were mentioning that they traditionally looked more at the grey matter, spines mm -hmm. develop, but what yeah. else can happen? Yeah, so, so the most well-studied phenomenon when we think about plasticity is plasticity at the synapse. So the synapse is the, the connection point between two neurons, between two brain cells, and that's where the messages pass from one brain cell to the other. And it's very well established that those synapses become stronger or more effective with experience. So <clears throat> there's a process called long-term potentiation or long LTP, which strengthens those synapses. So that reflects this notion that cells that fire together wire together. So when you get synchronous activity in two cells, that functionally strengthens the synapse. So that's um, the classical type of plasticity, which makes a given signal more effective as a result of experience. And the synapses are located on tiny little processes on the brain cells called spines, and we know from certain types of microscopy that those spines grow and retract and grow and retract with experience. So you have a functional strengthening of the synapse, which might happen through you know, placing new receptors or changing the amount of neurotransmitter that is kept around. Um, but then also you physically grow new synapses. So all of that is happening within the grey matter of the brain. It's happening at the point where the synapses and the cell bodies are located. But what has been much, much less studies is, is, is whether there's any way in which activity affects the white matter, which is where we've been focusing. And why did you focus on that? So it was partly driven by <coughs> methods that were becoming available at the time. So this was maybe 15 years ago when a new method called diffusion imaging was being particularly developed and new ways of um, analysing these diffusion data to allow you to characterise tissue microstructure. So diffusion imaging is sensitive to movement of water in the tissue and in tissue with a highly directionally oriented structure like a fibre pathway, information about water diffusion is very helpful in telling us about the, that physical structure. So there were new methods that allowed us to look at tissue structure which were particularly relevant for studying the white matter so it was really opportunistic to apply these new methods of studying white matter to a question that I was interested in was plasticity um, to study and to detect that phenomena for the first time in humans. But 
in parallel, um, a lot of research was happening much more at the basic level, so myelin biologists were becoming interested in this process of activity-dependent myelination at a very, very basic level, so people studying you know, isolated brain cells in a laboratory, you know, in a dish, where you can very finely manipulate the activity and measure the myelin. So, yes, we sort of stumbled upon this area almost accidentally by applying this new method um, in experiments and then spotting that something was changing in the white matter and then have had to work backwards to try to figure out what, what it was that was changing in the white matter. I think it's fascinating to learn more and more what changes in the brain with learning and mm -hmm. with experience and it's much more than just uh, synapses mm -hmm. and probably even more than the myelin development. I heard about brain waves that are integrated during learning processes mm -hmm. or oscillations and yes. are, you, are you looking into new directions too or are you still focusing on the myelin? Yeah, so we haven't as yet related this to things like oscillations so as you say, there's lots of different ways in which the brain changes with experience. Um, we are interested in the consequences of this myelin change. So if a, if a pathway becomes more myelinated, then what effect does that have on the activity of the network as a whole? So, you know, in very simple terms, it speeds signal transmission along that pathway. But as we were discussing, that pathway is part of a network and across the whole network, um, what might be relevant is things like oscillations or, you know, coupled frequencies across brain regions, not just at the arrival time of a single signal, but um, how those signals fit into a pattern of activity over time. That's not something we've yet um, looked at in detail in humans. We are beginning some experiments in rodents where we can use electrodes to directly measure um, electrical activity in different brain regions to try to start to get some picture of how the functional coupling between regions alters as we alter the myelination. I also talked to Jamie Tyler and he's using ultrasound mm. to modulate the brain. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you have heard about that. Is that another approach to change uh, yeah. brain activity? That's a very exciting emerging approach. So in my lab we haven't used it at all. Um, I have colleagues in Oxford who are beginning to experiment with this. Ultrasound is exciting, so uh, you know, people will know it's a method that can be used to look inside. So if you're pregnant, then often you have an ultrasound scan to see the, the baby in the, in the, in, inside the womb. But it can also be used to sort of put energy into the body. So, um, for example, surgeons use high-intensity ultrasound in certain neurosurgical procedures where you try to break down the blood-brain barrier to allow things to get into the brain in cancer, for example. But what's of interest currently to neuroscientists that if you use much lower intensity, so not an intensity that should be damaging the brain, but a lower intensity focused ultrasound stimulation, you can very focally transmit ultrasound energy to a targeted area of the brain. And neuroscientists are very interested in whether that could be used to to stimulate a particular region and one of the things that's exciting about it is that you could use it to target a deep area in the brain so most of the approaches that we have for stimulating the brain you have to come in from the outside so if you're trying to get to somewhere deep you affect everywhere else along the route but ultrasound is interesting because you can focus it to a very specific spot um, so it's theoretically very attractive and there's just very recently some work beginning to emerge where people have applied it um, and are starting to see 
interesting effects of that. So colleagues in Oxford have been applying it in non-human animals, so in monkeys, for example, showing that if you target deep brain structures, you can uh, affect behaviour, and if you then image the monkeys using fMRI, you can see how that alters the network. Um, you know, then I think there's a lot of very, very careful work to be done with any new technique to be very cautious and careful about safety before that then take, becomes a, a type of approach to be used in, in human research. But it's certainly something that should be pursued in the future to see whether that would be a, a good way forward. And the method TDCS that you have been doing research about, is it already used in the clinic uh, regularly or is this also just uh, in the experimental phase? Yeah, it's still really just in the experimental phase. Um, of the different types of brain stimulation available, there are, there's just one that I'm aware of that's sort of approved for clinical use. So that's a method called transcranial magnetic stimulation or TMS, where it has been used therapeutically for depression, so targeting the prefrontal cortex. TDCS has potentially a lot more scope for clinical translation because it's very, very cheap, portable, easy to use, um, low-tech technology. So there's pl plenty of potential there, but I think there needs to build up the evidence base in properly powered, large-scale clinical trials to understand you know, which patients does it work in, which patients does it not work in, you know, what the optimal stimulus parameters are, etc. So there's still some work to be done because it's we wouldn't expect that a one-size-fits-all approach would be appropriate, but that you would have to tailor it in some way. I heard about a method that uh, after a stroke, when, for example, you cannot move your right arm anymore, instead of then trying to use your left arm, mm -hmm. you fixate your yes. left arm, mm -hmm. and then, very surprisingly, you get mm -hmm. more movement, slowly but surely, in the in the right arm. Yes. You, you've heard about it? Yes, yeah. So there's an approach called constraint-induced therapy, which is exactly that. So it's targeting a phenomenon called learned non-use. So the, the rationale behind it is that if somebody has a stroke that affects the movement of their right arm, yes, there is limited output from their brain to the right arm, and that's the core, that's the fundamental problem that they have. But on top of that, because their right arm is, is not very effective, they use it less and less. So if you like, they make it worse through adapting their behavior. So there's this phenomenon of learned non-use that they learn that it's ineffective, so they stop using it. And then it's a vicious cycle. The less they use it, the more ineffective it is. So the idea is that there is a, a latent ability there that it could perform better. They could use it more and they could use it better if they were forced to use that arm. So by constraining the good arm, the non-affected arm, you force the patient to use the bad arm and then it, it can, to some extent, get better. It can't get perfectly better because there still is the core underlying problem in the brain, which isn't going to go away. But you do then work against this learned non-use that they can, if you like, unlearn those bad habits of not using the arm and use it more effectively. So it sounds more and more, also after listening to your talk or reading new publications, so much is happening in the brain. I was reading the book by Linda feldman Barrett about emotions, and she says it's just a construct of the brain. I heard her talk about taste, it's just a construct of your brain. Mm -hmm. Now you show also with just activating the brain, you can really influence motor movement. Mm -hmm. There's some kind of brain centrism happening <laughs> from what I understand. Uh, what, what is your take on that? Are we yeah. looking too much into the brain and maybe forget the body or what's happening in between in, in mm -hmm. social groups, for example? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's increasingly clear that, for, that our perception is not just 
what's incoming to our sensory receptors. So a very good example of that is pain. So the pain that somebody experiences is not, when you say burns part of their body, it's not just related to the, temp to the amount of stimulation of those temperature receptors. It's also related to you know, emotional and attentional and all sorts of psychological factors. So perception is, is very much controlled by what's happening internally in the brain as well as by the, the external direct input. Um, and I think you know, that's generally true that how we view the world is very much influenced by what's going on inside our brains. And I think looking at it, understanding that in more depth, you know, is a way of understanding some of those other external factors that you talked about, like social groups. So the effect of a social group on my behaviour is mediated via my brain. You know, I can understand the effect of that social group in part by understanding how my brain changes when I'm surrounded by other people compared to being on my own. So it doesn't, um, it sort of enriches the study of sociology or psychology to appreciate that the effects of those factors which are in some ways appear sort of non-physical but actually do have those physical effects on the brain so trying to understand them together is really useful and, and it also highlights the limitation of of some types of neuroscience so the more reductionist we get so we can study the brain in great great detail in a laboratory setting you know at the extreme you can take brain cells or bits of brain cells out of the brain and study them in isolation in a dish and clearly that's not a good approach for understanding the effects of social context on behavior but it could be a very good a way of understanding you know, exactly what signaling pathways are involved in a particular type of plasticity for example but then that needs to be complemented by experiments where you can look at a whole organism and in a social context or in a more real world context so you need these multi different scales of approaching the problem to get a full understanding. Now you go back to Oxford today mm -hmm. and in the next month or half a year, what are your plans? What are you researching on right now? Yeah, so we have a f few big projects currently underway in my lab. So much of it is focused on this myelin question that we talked about, but then we're also doing some more very different sort of real world pragmatic trials of, sort of plasticity in action, if you like. So one of the types of effects on the brain we've been interested in is physical activity. So we're interested in whether physical activity enhances brain health and cognitive performance, both in older adults uh, and in children. So we're running, for example, a very large-scale trial in secondary schools where we're testing whether enhancing intensive activity in the context of school physical education lessons not only improves fitness, but whether that has consequences for academic attainment. Um, so that's something very different to the studies that we're doing in the lab. And similarly, we're involved in a study in um, retired adults, where again, the question is if you take sedentary older people and engage them in a physical activity program designed to enhance their mobility, does that have consequences for their cognitive performance, for their memory and attention processes? Are you also doing sports yourself, since you're so involved in this kind of research? <laughs> uh, yeah, I do. I, I do like sports. I like soccer, so I like football. I, I coach football. So. Oh, great. <laughs> yeah. This was my last question. Thank you very much. Okay. And hope to hear you and see you again yes. one day. And looking forward to the, the upcoming publications, especially how exercise influences, hopefully positively, academic success. Thank you very much.